Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and Star Wars Return of the Jedi marked the then-conclusion to an all-time greatest film trilogy that would actually be a never-ending stream of film, series, games, and droid-building workshops at Disneyland. Despite its divisive elements, Return of the Jedi remains a sacred installment to the franchise, perhaps because, as the most family-friendly of the original trilogy, it was really the Star Wars film many of us saw first as kids. Ewoks got us in the door! Which is kind of like the minions being your gateway to the deeper, complex mythology of Gru in the Despicable Me saga. There's a lot there. Be sure to check out my past breakdowns of A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, but now let us point out all the interesting visual details and easter eggs that make Return of the Jedi such a classic. The opening crawl reveals the title, Return of the Jedi. Originally, George Lucas and co-writer Larry Kasdan wanted to title it Revenge of the Jedi, but Lucas argued that revenge kind of went against the Jedi code. And as an Arthurian fantasy trilogy modeled partly on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Return of the made for a fitting title of the third. The opening words of the crawl are Luke Luke Skywalker has returned, apparently identifying Luke as the returning Jedi of the title, but this of course is a misdirect. Many Star Wars films possess titles that seem to refer to one thing at the start of the film but actually refer to another, and Return of the Jedi refers not to Luke, but to his father Anakin Skywalker, making this story one of redemption. After collaborating with Irving Kirshner for Empire, George Lucas commissioned for Return of the Jedi director Richard Marquand, who described Lucas's dominating presence and vision on set as like trying to direct King Lear with Shakespeare in the next room. As Result, Return of the Jedi returns from the character development of Empire to the things George Lucas has been more interested in, world building and Campbellian symbolism. Lucas was a proponent of the storytelling philosophy of Joseph Campbell, which states that all heroes of mythology go on cyclical journeys that lead them to return to their origin point having undergone a transformation. As a film, Return of the Jedi does this by repeating several of the story beats of A New Hope. Once again, the Empire is building a Death Star. Once again, Luke finds himself on Tatooine. But in both cases, the game is the same, but the players have changed! The film begins with a parallel image to the opening of A New Hope, a Star Destroyer wedging down into frame with the true returning Jedi of this film, Darth Vader. Vader presses Moff Jer Gerard to move even faster to complete this second Death Star, and I love how Jer Gerard gulps as Vader approaches, likely having heard all the stories about all the other Imperial officers Vader forced choked to death. So why this hurry? Well, if you think about it, the Emperor's political strategy depends on having the Death Star as an unmatched matched apocalyptic deterrent, maintaining order through fear. When the rebels destroyed the first in the Battle of Yavin, the Emperor's symbolic power was threatened, so the fragility of that fear signals a weakness in the Emperor that Luke can later exploit. R2-D2 and C-3PO arrive at the Palace of Jabba the Hutt. Originally in 1983, this was the first time audiences saw Jabba in the flesh, so much flesh, despite the CGI version of him that was added to the A New Hope 1997 Special Edition. This Jabba was a half million dollar, 2,000 pound puppet that required six people to operate, including one for separate movement of the mouth, the eyelids, the tongue. The inside of his hangout is styled to evoke the Mos Eisley Cantina, but with more elaborate character designs and culture. Like his guards are the pig-nosed Gamorreans, and he's flanked by a male Twi'lek advisor named Bib Fortuna, and a jester-like pet, a Kawakian monkey lizard named Salacious Crumb. There are Jawas present, and live music from the Max Rebo band. Max is the blue elephant looking dude who plays the red ball jet organ. This band includes lead vocals from Cy Snoochles, who is animated with CGI for the special edition, along with a new singer, Joe Yauza, whose voice was based on the singer Joe Cocker. They sing the song titled Lapti Neck, which is Hutties for Work It Out. 
It was written by John Williams' son, Joseph Williams, from the band Toto. Next to arrive is the bounty hunter, Boosh, bringing Chewbacca. Now, Boosh is, of course, Leia in disguise. On her helmet are the numbers 1138, one of many of George Lucas's nods to his previous film, THX 1138. Also in disguise is Lando Calrissian, pretending to be Tamtel Screege from a legend story, but in Solo, Beckett wore this disguise on Kessel, suggesting that in the film canon, Lando found it on the Falcon. Leia thaws Han, but she also ends up one of Jabba's possessions and wearer of a metal bikini that would shatter the innocence of Comic-Con attendees for decades to come. With all the pieces in place, Luke arrives. Now, I've pointed out before how the color of Luke's clothes changed throughout the film. White in A New Hope, gray in Empire, and now black in Jedi, reflecting his descent into the dark side to rescue his father. He first appears as a hooded silhouette, similar to Vader's arrival in the first film, and he force chokes the guards, his dad's favorite move, when a Jedi mind trick probably would have worked here. Luke defeats the Rancor by dropping the gate on its head. This results in tears from the Beastmaster named Malakili. If you're wondering the story behind this guy, according to Lord, this Rancor has a name, Patissa, and it actually saved Malakili's life during a Tusken Raider attack. And he planned to one day escape with the Beast before Luke killed it. They're taken to the Sarlacc which George Lucas updated from the original version, a pit with teeth and tendrils, to a more visible beast with a large beak. I used to live here. Actually, according to canon, when Luke was a kid, it was a popular dare among his friends to jump the Sarlacc pit in a low-flying sand skimmer, which is partly why he's so unafraid of it here. Luke makes his big move, having R2 launch to him his new green lightsaber. Now, originally, Luke's new saber was going to be blue, like his old one was. If you looked at early trailers and posters, it was blue there. But a scene showing Luke assembling and activating his new saber was cut from the film. So to avoid confusion that this wasn't the same lightsaber that he lost on Cloud City, they changed the color. Luke wildly swings the lightsaber to attack Jabba's men, whereas the lightsaber action of the first two films was more confined, limited mostly to duels and tauntaun surgery. This film draws more upon the swashbuckling stunts of pirate films and Errol Flynn movies. Luke's Jedi Knight skills are so deadly that he can now force kick the air to disarm and take down. Yes, that is how I choose to interpret this. Boba Fett suffers a sadly unceremonious death after Han knocks his jetpack by accident. <laughs> George Lucas later said that had he known Boba Fett was going to be so popular, he would have given him a more memorable death. And he considered adding a shot of Boba Fett escaping the Sarlacc pit for the 2004 DVD release. Boba Fett also escapes the Sarlacc in Legends lore, but this has yet to be confirmed true in cinematic canon. Fingers crossed the Mandalorian makes Patton Oswalt's dream come true. The gloved Mandalorian armor gauntlet of Boba Fett grabs onto the sand outside the Sarlacc pit and the feared bounty hunter pulls himself from the maw. Leia uses her slave chains to choke Jabba, a death meant as an homage to the death of Luca Brasi in The Godfather, the director of which, Francis Ford Coppola, is Lucas's longtime friend and inspiration for the character of Han Solo. They blow the yacht and escape, and when Luke takes off in the X-Wing, there's a close-up of his machine hand reminding us of his increasing anatomical similarity to his father. Luke's hand is the unhealable wound archetype, similar to Frodo's shoulder, the physical impairment that never fully heals to symbolize their burden and the way evil is attempting to corrupt them. And speaking of evil, the Emperor arrives. And we'll only be calling him the Emperor here because he was not named Palpatine or Darth Sidious until later. Originally, this was Ian McDiarmid's first appearance in the role, with the part played by Marjorie Eaton and voiced by Clive Revel in The Empire Strikes Back before Lucas re-edited that scene in 2004. McDiarmid was initially just brought in to play the physical part of the character, but he impressed Lucas with his wicked demonic voice. Rise, my friend. He 
based that voice on a Japanese method of channeling a bass resonance through your stomach, resulting in this guttural croak that is now so iconic, it's not hard to do it yourself, just do it. On Dagobah, Yoda confirms that Vader is Luke's father. He also tells him, One thing remains, Vader. You must confront Vader. Then, only then, a Jedi will you. Now it's worth noting that Yoda does not say kill Vader, only confront. It's a bit of foreshadowing of Luke's solution to overcoming Vader, not by violence, but by conversion of values. George Lucas made Yoda declare this truth because he said after consulting with a child psychologist, moviegoers ages 12 and under would dismiss Vader's claim to be a lie unless it was unequivocally stated by the most trusted elder of this universe. In my view, everything that pissed people off about Return of the Jedi originated from this child psychologist session. Because Return of the Jedi marked the moment the Star Wars franchise changed to become family films. Now, to be fair, this is what got me on board with the series as a five-year-old. But, you know, over the years as a grown-up who sometimes acts like a five-year-old, it kind of sucks to hear the directions this film almost went. For example, both Harrison Ford and Larry Kasdan wanted Han Solo to be killed off. But Lucas reportedly responded to that that he didn't see much of a future in dead Han toys. Uh, tell that to the Han in Carbonite rug. Similarly, Endor was originally going to be a Wookiee planet, but Lucas insisted that the furry creatures be smaller and closer to teddy bears. Now, the fact that Later films showed us both Kashyyyk and Han's death proves that eventually everything we want from Star Wars will happen. Yoda's final words are another confirmation. There is another Walk. Completing his sentence from that lingering cliffhanger from The Empire Strikes Back. No. There is another. Further clarification is provided by Obi-Wan's ghost, who now uses some verbal gymnastics to explain how Anakin's dark side, Vader, killed Anakin's light side when he took over, and he helps him realize that Leia is his twin sister. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? I kiss my sister, old man! Obi-Wan's deception was designed to make it easier for Luke to kill his father, to see him purely as evil. But that feeling of betrayal ends up being part of the reason Luke is able to defy his mentors to take a different approach toward Vader. The rebel fleet regroups led politically by Mon Mothma and militarily by Admiral Akbar. Akbar is a Mon Calamari from the ocean-covered world of Mon Cala, and according to canon, he was once the slave interpreter and personal pilot of Grand Moff Tarkin, from whom he learned Imperial strategy before he was freed and rose through the ranks to become leader of the rebel military. Mothma shares new intel about the second Death Star and that the Emperor would be on it. Many Bothans died to bring us this information. Interestingly, Star Wars lore expands on the Bothans, known for their spy net and their operation to steal an Imperial computer, one that we learn later this film the Emperor actually allowed them to steal. Really, only about a couple dozen Bothans died in this universe. Billions of people die constantly, but Bothan politicians loved painting them as heroic martyrs for years to come, and Mothma, as a politician, is using this sacrifice to motivate the rebel fleet here. Before I continue, thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Epic Games, and their Star Wars Fallen Order game, the new third-person action-adventure game, which you can download yourself by clicking on the link below. Fallen Order takes place after the events of Revenge of the Sith, when the Jedi have been purged from the galaxy at the Order 66 of Emperor Palpatine. You can play as an escaped Padawan who joins up with some Resistance members to rebuild the Jedi Order. Mm, good luck with that. I've joked before about the youngling who tastes Anakin Skywalker in Revenge of the Sith. Mr. 
Ah, no! Ouch! Ouch! No! Stop! 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 Ow! 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 And you know what? That's that's not funny. We should all have more empathy for what these poor kids went through. The game looks incredible and it's super fun to play. And if you enjoy Star Wars mythology, or if you just like cutting stormtroopers in half with a lightsaber, you're definitely gonna want to jump on this. Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is available in the Epic Game Store for $59.99. When you download it from the Epic Game Store, you get a free stormtrooper skin in Fortnite. Use my link below to download Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order yourself and use my support a creator code New Rockstars to help support the channel. Thanks again to Epic Games for sponsoring this episode. They head to the Force Moon of Endor. In addition to Wookiees instead of Ewoks, Kazdan also wanted to replace this setting of Endor with what would have been the Imperial capital called Had Abaddon, which was later renamed in canon as Coruscant. Endor was shot in the Redwood Forest of Northern California, with its name taken from the Bible in which King Saul encountered the Witch of Endor, which is a village in Israel. They get spotted by scout troopers, whom they pursue in a thrilling speeder bike chase. These point of view shots were achieved by having a camera operator with a steady cam walk backward through the forest at normal speed, with the camera capturing one frame every few seconds, and then later they reversed that footage and played it back at 24 frames per second, speeding up the footage by 5,000%. Leia meets the Ewok Wicket, played by Warwick Davis as a boy. It was his first film role, and he would go on to play several W-named characters in the Star Wars films. The name Ewok is derived from Miwok, the name of Native American tribes indigenous to Northern California, where the indoor scenes were shot. The Ewok language is based on the Kalmyk language of Buddhist tribes in Southern Russia. Vader meets with the Emperor in his throne room. Now, his observation window is clearly designed to resemble a spider's web, with the Emperor as the spider in the center. The main plot of this film is an elaborate trap set by the Emperor. It's a trap! Yeah, we know. A trap designed to crush the rebellion and convert Luke to be successor to Vader in one swift motion. Though, note that while Vader felt Luke's presence, the Emperor did not. I have felt him, my master. Strange that I have not. I wonder if your feelings on this matter are clear, Lord Vader. It's a little moment that foreshadows how the connection between Vader and Luke is stronger than the power of the Emperor. The Emperor is powerful, unlimitedly so, but he's alone. And this film suggests that the power of family and connection will always overcome any power achieved in isolation. The others are brought to an Ewok camp to be eaten, but they're saved by Leia and 3PO, whom the Ewoks worship as a god. In the same way that Yoda used the Force to lift technology, to inspire faith in Luke, Luke does the same with 3PO to inspire faith in the Ewoks. 3PO regales the Ewoks with the story of their adventures, which, coming from a deity figure, must come off as a kind of religious parable to them. Originally, George Lucas conceived of Star Wars as a legend from what he called the Journal of the Wills, a biblical text that would have been passed down from a future alien race called the Wills. Before leaving, Luke talks with Leia. Leia, do you remember your mother? Just a little bit. She died when I was very young. She was very beautiful, kind, but sad. A draft of the script actually went into more detail about their mother, saying she was disguised as a handmaid of her adoptive parents, whom were later laved Bale and Breha Organa. The prequels revised this, of course, with Padme, who died in childbirth, though since Padme would disguise herself as a handmaid on Naboo, some have speculated Leia in that draft was forced remembering Padme's past. And then Luke tells Leia that Vader is his father, well, actually their father. Force is strong in my family. My father has. I have it, and my sister has it. John Williams underscores Leia's realization with a new theme for this film, the Luke and Leia theme. Yes, 
you live. I know. Somehow. I've always known. Mm, always? I assume she means her hearing Luke's voice as he called to her from Cloud City, not uh, anything that happened before that. Luke surrenders himself to Vader, boldly attempting to appeal to his father's robot heart. I know there is good in you. The Emperor hasn't driven it from you fully. That was why you couldn't destroy me. I love the blocking choice of Luke turning his back to the man he last faced in an epic duel. It signals to his father that he is not there to confront him with violence, but Vader responds to this gesture with a threat. <laughs> But in doing so, Luke has led his father to an opportunity to wield a Jedi lightsaber once more, to remind his father the feeling Luke felt when he first activated Anakin's old lightsaber in Obi-Wan's home. And notice how that tactic shifts the power dynamic of the scene. Vader lowers the blade and he turns away as well. And for the first time, he reveals his inner suffering. Obi-Wan once thought as you do. You don't know the power of the dark side. I must obey my master. It is too late for me, son. The Emperor will show you the true nature of the Force. Vader describes himself as a slave to a greater evil beyond his control. The first time, he has said he's not in full control of something. But in doing so, he reciprocates Luke repeatedly calling him father by calling Luke son. And that is enough of a signal to Luke that his father can still be saved. The Ewoks and Rebels surround the shield generator base, and Han makes the sickest move the whole Star Wars franchise. Inside the base, Han kills an armed Imperial officer by chucking junk across the room at him. Great. This is actually a cameo by sound designer Ben Burt. That scream he does is his best approximation of the famous Wilhelm scream, a sound effect that Burt made iconic with his work on these films. Among the Rebel fleet are the B-Wing fighters, but since their thin profile makes them hard to see on screen, the B-Wings were actually removed from the later part of the battle. Akbar commands from his flagship, Home One, and leading the strike is Lando Calrissian, piloting the Falcon with co-pilot Nian Numba. On the Death Star, Luke and Vader meet the Emperor, who reveals the coming Rebel attack was all according to his plan. Your overconfidence is your weakness. Your faith in your friends is yours. What I like about this is that both of them are correct. Luke's faith in his friends is a weakness. This weakness led him to give up on his Jedi training in The Empire Strikes Back and run after them to Cloud City, confronting Vader before he was ready. But that weakness also gives Luke humanity, which becomes a strength by giving him an ally in Vader. That human connection is what the Emperor lacks. And as Luke tells him, his hubris creates a blind spot to Vader, one person powerful enough to destroy him. The fleet scrambles as they realize, It's a trap! I know. Meanwhile, the captured rebels are saved by the Ewoks. They use a variety of guerrilla tactics tactics, tripwires, catapults, swinging logs. Their success was actually modeled on the Viet Cong's guerrilla tactics in the Vietnam War, with more primitive natural forces overcoming a seemingly superior technological force. And to accentuate the surface-level drama of this war, the camera lingers on some of the casualties. As a kid, I cried at this stuff. As an adult, I kind of rolled my eyes, just as I did to Malkili. But now, rewatching it, you gotta love the choice to linger on the grief that this warfare causes. Chewie lets out a Tarzan yell as he swings onto an ATST. Inside, the pilots are actually cameos by director Richard Marquand and co-producer Robert Watts. And the battle ends with this great callback. 
I love that the thing that inspires Han to say I love you is Leia hiding a blaster, ready to shoot first, just as Han actually did to Greedo. McClunky forever. McClunky. Throughout all this, the Emperor tempts Luke to give in to his anger over his friends dying from an actually operational Death Star super laser, which makes Luke snap. <laughs> As a contrast to their previous duel, this time Luke initiates and Vader is now reactive. And notice how their blades clash over the Emperor's smile. It's because the Emperor is actually Luke's true opponent in this duel, whereas Vader is just a tool of the Emperor. Luke kicks Vader down the steps, making some contact this time, and I like how Bert included a subtle scratch of Vader's lightsaber on the steps as he flips. Luke counters Vader's awesome saber toss with a furious charge, evoked by Vader threatening Leia. The camera dollies left as Luke beats his father back until finally, as Vader did to Luke on Cloud City, Luke hacks off his hand. Luke gazes down at his prosthetic hand and then back at his father's now stump and realizes that he again is playing right into the Emperor's trap. It's a trap! Luke has become the fury-driven Emperor apprentice that his father was, and one that, if he continues on this path, will inevitably be replaced, probably by his nephew. So when Luke rejects the Emperor, the look of disgust from the Emperor is the scariest that we ever see him. Because for once, things are no longer going according to his plan. He's threatened, and he knows in this moment that he has lost this war because Luke's values of family, of connection, of redemption have triumphed over the Emperor's values of ambition, aggression, and power. So he uses Sith lightning on Luke. His use of Sith lightning on Luke is really just the savage gnashing of a wounded animal. As Luke screams in agony, Vader's inner humanity finally surfaces. And down goes the Emperor. Well, until J.J. Abrams brings him back. Now, you also notice that Vader said, no, no, here. This was added later to the special edition. Originally, he was silent. Lucas went back and redubbed the no, similar to the one in Revenge of the Sith, perhaps to link Anakin's grief over losing a child in that moment to almost losing that child again. Also notice that the Sith lightning illuminates a skull under Vader's mask, implying that there is a human face underneath that helmet. And John Williams underscores this victory with a leitmotif to the heroic force theme, reflecting Vader's return to the light side of the force. And now, wounded, his iconic breathing has changed forever. With the shield down, Lando is leading the raid into the Death Star, and he knocks off the Falcon's dish, a callback to the scratch that he promised Han he wouldn't get on it. But before it blows, Luke unmasks his father, revealing, whoa, not the face James Earl Jones' powerful voice had us expecting, but that of actor Sebastian Shaw, pale, bald, scarred. The 2004 DVD release reduced Shaw's eyebrows to be more consistent with Anakin's burns in Revenge of the Sith. They also made him even paler, which reflects how under that mask, Anakin's appearance was gradually transitioning into something akin to the Emperor. I'll not leave you here. I've got to save you. You already have Look. You are right. You are right about if it hurts to see the most memorable film villain get dismantled like this, that's by design. When damaged souls find redemption, 
the seemingly cool outer layer of them melts down into something kind of ugly, but honest and true. Redemption is not a butterfly transformation. Following the Death Star explosion and Anakin's funeral by fire, the final minutes of Return of the Jedi have been drastically altered in later editions. The 1997 special edition added to the celebration montage Cloud City, Tatooine, and the soon-to-be-introduced in Phantom Menace Coruscant, including the Emperor statue being toppled, and a crowd-surfing stormtrooper emitting another Wilhelm scream. The 2004 DVD release added Naboo to the celebration and a Coruscant, the Senate building and Jedi Temple in the background. All of these changes I'm okay with, except Luke sees the Force ghosts of Obi-Wan and Yoda, joined by his father, Anakin, but in 2004 and every edition onward, they replaced Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen Anakin from the prequels. George Lucas said he changed it because I guess he wanted the Anakin at the end of the film to be the Anakin before he transitioned to Vader. In fairness to Hayden Christensen, the actor said that when he shot this, he didn't understand what Lucas would use it for, and if he did, he would have played it totally different. The problem is, the Anakin of the entire final act of Revenge of the Sith had already become Vader. He became Vader when he let Mace Windu die, when the Emperor proclaimed him so, when he force-choked his pregnant wife, when he tried to murder his former mentor, definitely when he slaughtered younglings in the Jedi Temple. Sebastian Shaw is the face of Anakin after he has come back from that darkness, after he made the decisive choice to reject evil. His is the face of redemption, and the face Luke should see at the end. George Lucas did all this work to build up a sobering, chilling catharsis to unmask his great villain, and then he dashes all those powerful emotions by injecting a stranger if your first viewing of this series is in release order, as the resonant final image of the greatest trilogy of all time. Lucasfilm, Disney, I beg you, do not let this edition live on as the version of Return of the Jedi that future generations of fans imprint as Star Wars canon when they discover this on streaming platforms. Just fix it and re-upload. Help me, George Lucas, you're our only hope. Hey look, that aside, kudos to Return of the Jedi as a whole for taking a beloved franchise in a direction that forced us to both find our inner child and accept change. But what do you think about Lucas's changes to the original trilogy? Comment down below with your thoughts, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss, and subscribe to our WikiLeaks podcast feed for all of our Star Wars analysis. Thank you for joining me in. Oh God, George Lucas is editing me over with Hayden Christensen.